Look, I got a question for you this morning as we think about this um, passage, and the question is, are you someone who finds it easy to acknowledge God's wondrous works? Are you the type of person who sees God's wondrous works? Let me press a little bit further um, and ask you this. Does it kind of bother you if you come in on a Sunday morning and it is time to, you come into the assembly, come to church, and the leader up here is saying, hey, raise your voice, lift up your hands, worship the Lord. How does that kind of make you feel? A few weeks back, a few weeks back, um, some songs were selected and we were singing and we were encouraged to lift our voices. And as I was reading the words and as I was supposed to be singing them, I kind of found this just a, a pause. I thought, Lord, I'm really struggling right now to believe this about you. I don't know if that's ever happened to you that you come in and, and just, ugh, these words, you know they're true, but to sing them with all your heart, to actually engage with everything that you have in the public assembly, it's, it's, it's not always easy. Following that sort of time, we were then sort of told about Ethiopia and what's going on in the country of Ethiopia and, and the pastors and how the pastors would be singing this with all their might. You know, comparisons aren't always helpful, but it did make me consider and think about why might those pastors be able to praise the Lord with their whole heart when I'm not? There are many reasons that I have kind of thought about as I was working through this um, passage and preparing to speak on this. And I think some of the challenges that we might struggle with coming into the Lord's presence and singing with all of our heart is because we've had a really difficult time getting to church this morning. <laughs> the kids haven't cooperated. We might have had an argument or a disagreement with our partner or our wife. Um, we may have, we may be just physically not feeling real well. Um, there might be some tension at work and it's playing on our brain. One of our colleagues has gossiped about us or slandered about us and misrepresented us. It's playing in our brain and we know that we're going to have to face that tomorrow. Perhaps we overcommitted on the weekend and we are just so exhausted. It's just a chore to get here and we're just kind of falling into the public gathering. Or perhaps you're distracted because the volume's too loud or it's not loud enough. It's too cold in here or it's, um, you know, too hot in here. Just maybe a bad week. And let's not get started about the pandemic and all that distracts us thinking about that. But you get it. There are many things that are possible hindrances or distractions for us when it comes to praising the Lord in the public and with our whole heart. These and other private and personal circumstances can make it terribly difficult to praise the Lord. And yet I'd also say to you, outside of those terrible circumstances and those painful situations, beyond those challenges, beyond those realities, the psalmist of Psalm 111 wants us to see that there are wondrous and majestic and glorious works which lead us to praise 
as I said before, Psalm 111 is not comfortable. It wasn't comfortable for me. It's not easy. It doesn't actually allow us excuses or exemptions or exceptions. I've checked. I've looked for those things. It doesn't give any of those for us. But instead, it's actually an invitation. It's an invitation, and he's asking here, he's hoping that the readers will understand that we have reason to praise the Lord. And not just robotically and not just mechanically suppressing how we genuinely feel, but with the knowledge of the Lord, we can come with full hearts. And we can come into this public gathering with other brothers and sisters and we can look at one another and we can sing out to our Savior full confidence that he is a good God. And so as we head into 2022, would our praise to God be inspired with all of our heart, with a full heart for the glory of God and the good of ourselves. And so I've got one hope for us this morning. As we work our way through this psalm, and it is this, that by reviewing God's wondrous works, they would continually fuel great praise. By reviewing God's wondrous works, they would continually fuel great praise. If you take notes, the title of my message this morning is Inspired Praise to God. And I've got three points for us this morning. We're going to look at the direction of this psalm. We're going to look at the content of this psalm. And we're going to look at preparation for praise. And so first, let's look at the direction of this psalm. And we see it in verse 1. The psalmist said, King David says, praise the Lord, exclamation point. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart and the company of the upright in the congregation. Now, it would seem that what the psalmist is declaring here is that acknowledgement of Yahweh in public gatherings of the saints ought to be done. Now, you may notice he just says praise the Lord. He doesn't give us a whole bunch of reasons why we are to praise the Lord. He will get to that. But right off the bat, he's saying praise the Lord. And then he sets an example by sharing what he's going to do. Look with me. He says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. That's what I'm going to do. I want you to join into that. Praise the Lord. Let's do it with our full heart. And then he talks about where this is supposed to be done. The location of what's, where this is supposed to happen. This praising of the Lord. I mean, I think many times we can think, yeah, I praise the Lord in my car, I praise the Lord in, the, in my home and, you know, um, privately. But this is an invitation and a direction to praise the Lord with our full heart in the public gathering. This right here among us, we can be are invited to be men and women who seek to worship the Lord and inspire praise and glory to God to our brothers and sisters in our public gathering. Among those who are seeking to live for God. Oh, how hard can that be though? I mean, to be fair, I just want to put us in the place of where King David is. This is Old Testament times. Yes, he was king and he had a lot of wealth. But think about the people that were being, or that were the hearers of these words. I mean, there were social, economical, racial, governmental challenges. They're living in the ancient Near Eastern times. They would have, it would have been no easy walk in the park. 
They would have had the rich and the poor, the lame, the healthy, the weak, the strong, male and female issues, slave and free men. No matter who you are, though, if he is your Lord, if Yahweh is God and he you have made a covenant with him and he is to be your God and you are to be his people, praise the Lord and praise him among the upright with all your heart. You know, in this psalm in particular, each half verse begins with a word that begins with the Hebrew alphabet. It's an acrostic psalm. And by forming or pinning lyrics like this or a hymn like this or a song like this, the reason they did that, because it was a helpful way of remembering the themes of God's person and works for an uneducated and illiterate type of people. They didn't have what we have. They didn't have the opportunity to education the way we do. But this would be a similar way in which we help our kids learn their ABCs or memorizing their odds and evens. We used to teach our kids our odds and evens by, do you guys remember that little thing, huddle that you would do after a soccer game? Two, four, six, eight, who do we appreciate? No, we used to teach our kids the even numbers by going two, four, six, eight, who do we appreciate? Ten, ten, yay, ten. Or odds, one, three, five, seven, who do we want to see in heaven? Nine, nine, yay, nine. It was a way that the kids would actually be able to remember what their odds and evens were. This is kind of what, what what the Psalms are all about. It's to help us to remember things. Don't we teach our kids Jesus loves me? Why do we teach them Jesus loves me in a song? It's special. It's it's a way of it clicking in and recalling that truth. I mean, imagine us as a church singing Psalm 111 when we came into a gathering. That's how this would have been used. But as I thought about this direction that King David is giving, it got me thinking. Where can it be the most difficult or the most challenging to praise the Lord? Is it not in the public gathering where some people are doing really good and they're on fire for God and they're giving, going through a season of blessing where others might be struggling? Could it be most difficult to come in and publicly praise the Lord when you yourself are just not doing well? It's a reality that we face. It is hard to um, publicly praise the Lord in a public gathering with your whole heart when things aren't right. But I want us to consider, and I think it's worth you considering, what this direction is. How we're supposed to do it. We're, We're called to praise the Lord. We're called to praise the Lord with our whole hearts. We're invited to. And we're called to do that in our public gatherings. But still the psalmist here is leading us somewhere. Even though we might have all the answers, let's move with him and see if it doesn't still inspire our praise. And so my second point is the content for this psalm. And this is probably the bigger point, verses 2 through 9. We're going to break that up into three little parts here. But we've established that the praise to God is divinely inspired. It's a divinely inspired order, order. And ideally, this praise to God should be done with all of our hearts and should be done in public gathering. But what might this praise acknowledge? Or what might this praise or acknowledgement of God include? I reckon in these eight verses, King David has given us three specific details that can help us praise Yahweh. 
And what he points out is kind of like in verses 2 to 4, he's kind of pointing out his works and his righteousness. And then he's pointing out the fulfillment of everything that he said he would do. And then finally he finishes with his faithfulness. But we'll just work through these three things. So in verses 2 to 4, look with them, um, look at them with me. It says, great are the works of the Lord studied, excuse me, by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. I don't know if you know this, but I learned this as I was preparing for this um, message. That um, there is a science laboratory in Cambridge, England. And it's called the Cavendish Laboratory. I don't know if I said that right. But it was named after the 18th century chemist and physicist, Sir Henry Cavendish. Now, Sir Henry lived between 1731 and 1810. But interestingly, over the entrance of this laboratory that he has developed, Psalm 111 verse 2 is inscribed for each scientist and each physicist to actually read as they come in. The reason for this inscription was so that they would be reminded, great are the works of the Lord. They are sought out, they're pondered by all who delight in them. And that was the hope. You see, one preacher penned this beautiful reflection on the principle that delight leads to study. Did you know that? Delight leads to study. Listen to these words. I think they'll come up on the wall for you. A lover can recall every feature of his beloved's face. A mother knows every dimple, hair, and birthmark on her body, baby's body. When we recognize something as full of splendor and majesty, careful attention is no chore. We're fascinated when we marvel at some wonder, when our hearts rise with delight in some reality, a natural and unavoidable response is to move further up and further in. To seek after the object of our affection. To devoted, concerted effort to observing, understanding, and evaluating what we love. And then to feel, apply, and express what we've seen. See, after the direction of praise in verse 1, the content of our praise pushes us to consider the works of God. Now, what's interestingly is that these works in verses 2 to 4... They're just general descriptions. They're just called great works. The Psalms begins with this affirmation that the works of the Lord are great. Now, why does this, what does the psalmist mean by works though? What's he talking about? Well, because we sit on this side of Jesus coming and going, uh, rising again, we actually have this word and we have a recording of everything that he's done. Perhaps King David, though, is referring to creation, the creation works that he's done. You see, he would have had the Psalms. He probably penned some of these. But in Psalm 8, 3 and 4, he talks about the works that refer to creation. He says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Another verse about creation is the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. 
Psalm 102, verse 25. Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. The creation that God has made is incredible. It is to be explored. There are mysteries that will hopefully fuel your praise. Have a look at your hands. Take a look at your, just your hands. Your hands, but especially your thumbs, are quite unique. It was actually Sir Isaac Newton who was once remembered for his observations of the human hand. And he said the thumb alone would be enough to convince him of God's existence. These hands that God has given us, they're sophisticated pieces of machinery. Did you know that one of your hands, it has 27 bones. It has eight in each wrist. It has five in each hand. And then 14 in the fingers. And then there's like a whole bunch of muscles that kind of make our hands work. But did you know it takes six muscles just to get our index finger working? It's an incredible design that God has created. These works should cause us to kind of be... To to be amazed. We didn't come up with that. Did you know that hands, by just by looking at hands, if you are trained, a doctor is able to tell whether there are strengths or weaknesses in your body. Just by kind of looking at your hands. Did you know that by holding hands with your loved ones, you can actually share pain. Sorry for spitting about there. That you can actually share um, pain, uh, uh, relief and bring comfort. Um, and actually it's been recorded that it can synchronize heart rates, um, breathing and brain waves. It reduces the pain. Now any doctors that I've got that information wrong, please correct me afterwards. But that was what I found. And it's just amazing when you think about how God has designed and created us. You see, an unbeliever, somebody who doesn't know God, they can look at these things and they can ponder them. Many of them do that. But the Christian not only looks at them and ponders them, but also, man, they delight in them. Why? Because they see them as the works of an almighty and ever gracious God. Not only creation, though, perhaps King David is kind of referring to the dealings that God had with Israel. I mean, so we have creation, but then we see these demonstrations. I mean, this is, again, we're talking about the content of this praise. But in verse 4, I think it is, um, he's caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and good. You know, when you think about these wondrous works, could it have been in his dealings with the Israelites? Remember, in Deuteronomy 11, we see his signs and his deeds that he did in Egypt to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and to all his land. And then you look down at verse 7, and he's, the, the, the writer saying, For your eyes have seen all the great works of the Lord that he did. There were so many dealings that God has done, so many deeds, wondrous works that the Lord has done. And then in the following verses of Psalm 111, we're going to understand better his dealings with Israel. However, it seems to be that the description of God's works in this psalm are the good deeds that he did for his people. You see, whenever a person looks, if the person knows God and has eyes to see his wonders and the wonders of God, they are so brilliantly displayed 
and it fills your heart. But here's the question for us. Where are you looking? Do you look and acknowledge his wonders? Do you see the variation of leaves and the temperature variations? Um, do you notice the differences in people's noses and eyes and, and eyelashes? I mean, there's some fascinating things. What are you looking at, friends? And would it be that in 2022, we're looking at the wondrous deeds of the Lord? I want to encourage you to. And when we see and study his wondrous works, it does cause delight in God. And God himself, because of what he has done. But I want you to, I want to point out with you, when you look through two through four, notice how the works are described. They're called great. They're called wondrous. They're called majestic. Is that how you view God's works? Now remember, thus far the psalmist still has yet stated specifically what these wondrous works and deeds are. However, he's preparing the readers and the hearers for something quite amazing by not only describing them as full of splendor and majestic. The writer is highlighting what God is like. This is who God is. He is great. He is full of splendor. He is glorious and majestic. And he is gracious and merciful. Do you know, we serve a righteous God. The righteous works of the Lord reveal his integrity. You all know what integrity is. Integrity is somebody who they are when nobody's looking. This is who God is when nobody is looking. He is good and he is gracious. He is going to be righteous in all that he does, in the way that he rules, in the way that he reigns, in the way he provides salvation, in the way that he provides judgment. He will be righteous in all that he does. So, don't know what to praise him for? There is some content for you. And this is why we can praise him. Because of his works and his righteousness. His character. That is why we can praise him. But not only that, we can praise him because he has fulfilled what he said he would do. So we have his works and his righteousness. And now in verses five to six, we're going to six, we're going to look at what he has fulfilled, what he's done. Look with me at verses five and six. He says he provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of nations. Remember how we mentioned earlier that the psalmist is possibly referring to the works of creation, and then perhaps his dealings with Israel. Here is where we will see more clearly his dealings with Israel. You see, for the psalmist, he wants to almost, it seems as though, he wants to remind the Israelites, his people that he's ruling and reigning. Or no, this is King David, I don't know where he was at that time, but he wants to remind those who follow Yahweh, That he has fulfilled great things. There have been specific works on behalf of God's people. That God's people can acknowledge and praise God for. 
You know, here, I don't, if you just quickly look at verses four, um, five, six, and nine, notice all the things that he, we see the capital he has. He provides, he has shown his people, he sent, um, he has commanded. This is God acting on behalf. This is, and it's also reminding of the readers of this is what God has fulfilled. So, One of the first things he does in verse 5 is he talks about the food. He provides food for those who fear him. Let's recall that provision of manna while Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years, never lacking food, clothing, provision. I mean, when you think about what his wondrous works were, what he fulfilled, he fed people for 40 years. He clothed them for 40 years. He gave them clothes that never wore out. He provided water from a rock. God fulfilled what he said he would do, that he would lead them and guide them, that he would be their God and he would be, they would be his people. He fulfilled what he said he would do. And then the psalmist brings in the covenant God made with his people back at Mount Sinai. God made a promise to his people. Everyone agreed. Did they keep their end of the deal? Well, God is showing, hey, I fulfilled what I said I would do. And I led you by a pillar by day and a cloud by night. Cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. And further to God's dealings with his people, we see in verse 6, the psalmist is referring most likely to the conquest of Canaan, where he led them out of the wilderness into Canaan, helping them defeat an incredible army. Remember the walls of Jericho? He did so many things. He fulfilled and acted on behalf of his people. And these three markers, food, covenant, and nations, would hopefully remind the hearers and readers of God's attributes and works that Yahweh could be counted on. Yahweh would fulfill his promises. He would and has fulfilled his end of the covenant. When you think about it, only the power of God could have accomplished the provisions of food for 40 years. That unending unfaithfulness to God to keep his promises to an unfaithful people and then enabling them to conquer giants, enemies, and to take possession of a land. It was God who acted, it was God who led, it was God who fulfilled, showing that his powerful acts are evidence that he acted as he said he was. And he has fulfilled his promises. But you may be saying, well, you know what? That's all good and great. That's great history that God acted in that way for those people. But you know what? He hasn't done that for me. Well, I want you to, I want you to stay with me because as we look at the next few verses, I think you'll see how he has actually acted for you as well. And those, uh, that's in verses seven to nine. So would you read verses seven to nine with me? The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. I don't know about you, but um, I'm not. Do you do you understand that the Bible from Genesis to Revelations, is a message of gracious redemption from start to finish. Scripture is not this advice column that's kind of tacked in at the end of the newspaper. It's, it's, it's actually front page good news. 
declaring the wondrous actions that God has done. One of the most brilliant moves that, that God has made was when he sent redemption to his people. It's something that he initiated, something that he planned and that he fulfilled, and far more than the writer of Psalm 11 will ever know or ever knew or understood, excuse me. So, verses 7 and 8 though, this, this is where the psalmist is providing more attributes and descriptions of Yahweh's deeds and then the laws. And teasing out the content for our, our direction to praise Yahweh. You see, Yahweh's works have been so faithful. He has been continually faithful and just. Yahweh gave the law to the people. And he has been trustworthy in giving them the law. And then he's been trustworthy in judging them in the way that he ha- they have fulfilled the law. But not just trustworthy. He has established and performed them for our good. I think King David, if he could, would want to take us all back to those places by pointing out the works and the laws and attributes of God's for readers and hearers. Because when you put them before people and you recall those things and you rehearse them and you revisit them, for so by doing, wondrous praise will flow out of our hearts. As we recall what he has done and how good and right his laws are and for his attributes and serving us and um, providing for us. You see, when God made a covenant with Israel, he included more than just wonderful promises. He gave them himself. And it was by, and, and he gave them this law. And it was by obeying the law, it's important that we understand that the law that God gave, it's, um, that was their end of the covenant. That was what they were supposed to do. Um, they were supposed to obey what the Ten Commandments were and all the various laws. So people wanted to live under God's continued gracious and mighty works. They showed him that they were, oh, that they were following him by keeping his covenant. Likewise, when God revealed his mighty works, he demonstrated the reliability of his word in keeping his promises. His faithfulness was demonstrated. Dane Ortland says that, um, says of this psalm that the Bible is not mainly a good book of advice telling us what to do. It is mainly a book of redemption telling us what God has done. The Bible is not commands with stories sprinkled in. It is a story with commands sprinkled in. Let's be clear, though, we're called to the high summons of holiness and obedience. But even in this, here is a grateful response from the heart to what God has done for us in his great grace. That's what he says about Psalm 111. And so as friends, uh, as my friends, I want you to head into 2022 knowing that what your calling is, understanding your summons and your which is holiness and obedience, having a grateful response from your heart. Why? Because of what God has done for us in his great grace. He has been faithful. And the good news of the gospel is that he sent redemption in the form of his own son. He came as a fully human person to begin the renewal and the consummation of all things through his life and his death and his resurrection. You and I as readers, as I mentioned before, we sit here in a sweet spot. 
We are on the other side of Jesus' life and death and his resurrection and his ascension. So God's past and present saving work from verse 9, which is specifically referring to redemption, isn't the same for David. He only knows of the redemption from Egypt. But how do you and I read verse 9 without thinking of the redemption from sin and its power that Jesus has achieved by his life and death and resurrection? I think we can find it challenging not to recall all the other acts that God has done. Yet when we do, we're reminded that he has become for us righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Praise his holy name. I quickly want to rehearse with you this term redemption, though, because perhaps you're sitting here and you don't fully understand redemption. It's borrowed from the ancient world of business. Just as the word propitiation is borrowed from the world of religion and justification is a word borrowed from law. You see, redemption refers to buying something back in the marketplace so it will not have to be sold there again. This doesn't mean much if you're just thinking about mere objects, but it means a great deal when you think of it in terms of people, but actually someone who is a slave So to redeem a slave was to buy the slave out of the slave market so that he or she might be free. It's truly, truly profound and powerful. Do you remember when I asked you, well, how has God acted for me? What do I have to praise God for? Well, if you know him, if you confess him as Lord, oh... You have so much to be thankful for. You have been redeemed. You have been bought out of the slavery of sin. And you have been set free. You have been justified. And now you are enjoying, or maybe not enjoying, the process of sanctification until we will be with him. We are being made like him. But perhaps you're here and you find, you know what? Jesus isn't my Lord and Savior. And this redemption idea is quite strange. Perhaps you don't know the value of the gift of grace that's been available to you. Perhaps you've never thought about your creation. When you were birthed into this world and ten little fingers and ten little toes and a heart that's beating. And you're nursed and and raised up. And then as you get older, you start to experience things that are hard. And you begin to experience the brokenness of marriage or the infidelity of, of um, adultery. Or you, um, you begin to experience um, being hurt and witnessing things in this broken and fallen world. You begin to ex- see how this world, we have, there's fallenness and brokenness. Perhaps you live with guilt and shame and you think something's wrong. I don't feel right because you realize of broken relationships. This is where redemption comes in. Perhaps you didn't know that you were created by a God who has given us his word and has told us and informed us of how we can live for him. He has a way for us as humans to live in this world. And so that is where we humble ourselves and we say, God, I am so sorry. I did not and I have not acknowledged you as Lord and Savior. 
I did not realize that you were to be my God and I was to follow you and obey you. And I can see where I have not kept your word. And I'm reaping the consequences of that. I'm not free. And when we ask Jesus to forgive us, that right there is where he redeems us. That's where he justifies us. And in that process of justification where he says forgiven, you are his. And then you begin that process of sanctification where you're growing to become more like him. And you become, and you will be, continue to grow to be like with him until he comes again. If this is all new to you and you don't quite understand that, write into us or, or come and talk to Brendan or myself or somebody else that brought you. But we would love to explain more. God has a way for us to live. And when we study the contents of what he has done, it leads us to this wondrous praise. All of these wonderful manifestations of God's nature lead us to See how holy and awesome is his name. And that's how verse 9 finishes. That's how King David says, holy and awesome is his name. I don't know how you view God. I don't even know how you would describe God to someone who asks you, who is God? But I want to tell you right now, God is holy. He is awesome. He is great. He has no one like him. To be holy is to be set apart, which means that there is, he's unique. It means that he's distinct from anything else in all of creation. There is no power. There is no justice. There's no faithfulness that can be matched with what God is. He cannot be matched or compared. Well, you say, well, how do you support that? Well, let's just do what the psalmist did and point out his wondrous works. What power stopped God from delivering the children of Israel out of Egypt? All the plagues and things that he did to Pharaoh. What stopped him? What power stopped him from parting the Red Sea and allowing a million or so um, Israelites walk through the waters and then pummel back in on the Egyptians? What power thwarted his son coming into this world in the form from with a through a virgin? What stopped him from bringing his son back to life, defeating sin and death? He cannot be matched. He is awesome. He is great. He's unbeatable. He's unmatchable. Is that the God that you come into on a Sunday morning ready to praise? Oh, that you would. And that I would see him as he truly is. If you're sitting here this morning thinking, oh man, that's crazy. Just ask the Lord, help my unbelief. Help me to see you as you truly are. Because you see, Israel did respond to him with fear and with adoration. And that is the right response For those that are redeemed. Will you? Will you respond to him in that way? Oh man, I reckon reviewing the content of verses 2 to 9. Would it encourage and inform your praise? But finally, I think, end of this psalm. We have this verse here that's kind of like, okay. And I reckon it's kind of talking about, we need a little bit of preparation for this. But it says, this is the psalmist saying, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have good understanding. His praise endures forever.
you know, Psalm 111, really, it's quite practical. It's exhorting us to praise God for his general and specific works, his work in creation and his salvation, work for his people in history and in redemption. And now we come to this practical conclusion. But I want to show you something. Did you know that this psalm is actually tackled onto Psalm 112? There's this one commentator um, wrote this about this. It's going to come up on the board, which might help you understand where I'm going with this preparation of praise. See, Psalm 111 is an acrostic poem about God. Psalm 112 is an acrostic poem about the godly man. The specific verbal contents of the two psalms match even more than the patterns for what is said about God in the first of these psalms is affirmed off the godly man in the second, which is a way of saying this. Get this. You will become like the God you worship. If you worship a false god or idol, you will become like your false god. But if you worship the true god of the Bible, you will become strong and gracious and compassionate and righteous and general and generous, excuse me, just and steadfast as he is. Oh, church, do we not want to reflect our great God? If you do, can I encourage you to See and hear the exhortation of the psalmist. Pursue the fear of the Lord, for this is the beginning of wisdom. In the book of Job, if you want to do more, well, first of all, just this word fear, just for so there's no confusion. This fear isn't you need to be afraid of God. This fear is that we adore him, that we're in awe of him, that we wonder about him. It's kind of like, you know, meeting someone that we really just like, whoa, they're pretty cool. I want to see them. But it's 10 times more with God. That is kind of what we're talking about, the fear of the Lord, knowing that. And so in Job 20, 28, 28, 28, he puts this. He puts fear of the Lord this way. He says, and he, Job, said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord. That is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. Proverbs 1, 7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 9, 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 says, 13 says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. See, why am I saying, why am I pointing out this wisdom? We need to study it. We need to prepare ourselves to review who God is and what he's called us to do. The effect of fearing the Lord includes so many things, my friends. And wisdom is the ability and discipline to live a productive and honorable life following and obeying God's word. Now, you may be thinking, I can't do that. I just, I can't. That's too much. You're asking me to do, do too much. Well, if you can't do it, that's good. I can't eat. All such ability is God-given. So, if you're saying, I can't, but you want to, well, that's a good thing. Ask the Lord to help you because it's by faith one who follows Christ will seek to live a moral and righteous life because we see how great and good and awesome as he is and what he tells us how he wants us to live. But what does that look like? I think it takes a bit of preparation. I'm not sure if you've ever thrown a party for someone. It takes planning. It takes thought. It takes creativity. It takes money. You might even need help and organization. But if you've, if, but have you ever noticed how much you think about the person that you want to throw the party for, uh, that you're wanting to celebrate? You're thinking about what they like, what they want, uh, what would bless them, what would surprise them. And then the other guests that you want to bring along, who'd love to see them, be with them, 
and how they're all going to come together and celebrate and enjoy the guest of honor. How many times, though, have you gone to a party where a host has invited you and you know that that host themselves, they're going through some health issues, they've got some challenges, they've got some difficulties, it's, they've been discouraged themselves. And they seem to push all of that aside and focus on celebrating their friend or their relative or their colleague or their loved one. Their focus is away from themselves. They've set time aside to prepare a party by pushing away some of what's going on for them so that they can celebrate and make someone honored. Now, please don't hear me saying that you have to push away all of your the realities of what's going on in your life, that, that you need to push the challenges away when you come to church. That's not what I'm saying, and nor is the psalmist. Instead, would it be that as believers, we prepare each week to come into the company of the upright, into the congregation, ready to praise the Lord with our whole heart, because he is worthy of our inspired praise. You know, too often, I look, I come, I come to praise on the basis of my circumstances. I'm thinking about my life. I'm thinking about my thoughts. I'm thinking about my feelings. And they then inform me of how I am viewing God. And what I can see from this psalm is, that's wrong! Oh, I have a God who has acted on my behalf in so many ways. You have a God who has acted on your behalf in so many ways. And wondrous and majestic are his deeds. So, let's praise him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of our hands. You have put all things under his feet. Heavenly Father, thank you for providing so much for us. Thank you for acting on our behalf. Thank you for taking the time to give us and granting us the gift of sight, for granting us the gift of understanding, for those of us who know you and want to praise you for who you really are. Oh, Lord, praise your holy name. But for those that are here who are just, they're not there yet. God, I ask that you would gift them the miracle of sight and understanding. Lord, so that all glory and all honor and praise would go to you. For truly, you are worthy of it all. In Jesus' name I pray.